I was scrolling through Netflix the other day for about 17 hours, as one does, when I stumbled across a book adaptation I knew was coming, but I had totally forgotten about. A new animated version of Richard Adams' Watership Down. Something will come to this place. We can leave now, or we can be destroyed with it. Good heavens. I mean, good gracious. And you were excited about this? Not really. Uh, I read the book as a kid, and I've seen the old cartoon version that came out actually the year I was born, but my strongest feeling about Watership Down is just how weird it is. I mean, it's a totally serious story about sentient rabbits. Except the rabbits have their own poetry and quasi-spirituality, but otherwise they're just rabbits that live in the world as we know it. Which is just strange. But with all that said, the plot itself is pretty straightforward. The rabbits of this particular warren, located somewhere in the south of England, have to find a new place to live because their resident seer rabbit has a vision of their current home being destroyed. And that's what the book is about. And it has been adapted three times, and in the 47 years since it was published, it has sold more than 5 million copies. So you might think, man, I bet there is a really fascinating story behind how Watership Down became this classic book. But you'd be wrong. The story, such as it is, goes like this. Richard Adams read this book about wild rabbits called The Private Life of the Rabbit and started making up stories about rabbits to entertain his daughters while in the car. He submitted Watership Down to at least eight publishers, who were presumably as confounded about what the book's appeal could be as we still are. Finally, the one-man publishing outfit of Rex Collings decided to take a chance on it. At the time, he wrote to his friend and associate, the critic and editor Isabel Quigley, I've just taken on a novel about rabbits, one of them with extrasensory perception. Do you think I'm mad? Collings used his entire budget to publish 2,000 copies, and there was no money for advertising of any kind. So all he could do was make sure it got into the hands of the big review outlets. And pray. The reviews were generally good. The highest praise came from The Economist, saying, If there is no place for watership down in children's bookshops, then children's literature is dead. But on the whole, the reviews weren't different than many books that get good reviews. But they don't go on to become stories passed on from generation to generation. Rex Collings, who so presciently and bravely took on Watership Down, never had another book even remotely as successful. He died in 1996 in dire financial straits. Richard Adams published a follow-up collection of short stories called Tales from Watership Down almost 20 years after the first book came out, but it's been forgotten. Adams never again had a best-selling book. And all this is perfectly normal. Perfectly normal in that the story of books that became huge best-selling books is that they were, the great majority of the time, surprises. And the exact mechanism of how they went from nothing to a phenomenon is a mystery. A mystery that in publishing has long been filed under the broad category of word of mouth. Word of mouth meaning that people read the book and then tell other people to read the book and then those people continue the process. Something about this book made people tell other people about it. And the train rolls on. As you might expect, if you could harness, control, and use word of mouth, you could change the publishing world. But as you know, this just doesn't happen that often. And so we are left to sort of just shrug our shoulders and move on. But what if we didn't have to just shrug our shoulders and move on? What if now, because of the internet, we can track how a book becomes a phenomenon in the form of tweets, YouTube views, Facebook likes, and Instagram stories? We can follow the chain of how something gets that pixie dust that some call word of mouth, but in the digital age, we call viral. Hello and welcome to Annotated. I'm Jeff O'Neill. And I'm Rebecca Shinsky. 
In this episode, two stories of books that went viral in the digital age and how both of them hit pretty close to home. These are stories of donkeys and dedication, Scottish grandmas and Haitian mothers. And how the more things change, the more they stay the same. This episode of Annotated is sponsored by The Lost Girls of Paris by Pam Jenoff and Park Row Books. Three brave women, one daring mission, and the ring of female spies who helped win the war. The Lost Girls of Paris is a World War II novel inspired by true events. It's vividly rendered. New York Times bestselling author Pam Jenoff shines the light on the incredible heroics of the brave women of the war and weaves a mesmerizing tale of courage, sisterhood, and the great strength of women to survive in the hardest of circumstances. Pam Jenoff's breakout novel, The Orphan's Tale, was an instant New York Times bestseller and continues to delight fans. Following up on this success is a remarkable story of friendship and courage centered around three women and a ring of female secret agents during World War II. Based on true events, this is perfect for fans of the Alice Network and Lilac Girls. Thanks again to The Lost Girls of Paris by Pam Jenoff and Park Row Books for sponsoring Annotated. If there is a home base for the viral internet, it is most likely the homepage of reddit.com. Reddit gets more than 18 billion page views a month, and more than 1 million posts are submitted. These range from text entries that are questions or stories, to sharing news and other written content from around the web, to photos and videos that users find interesting and want to share with each other. Every day, out of the tens of thousands of posts submitted, some become so popular that they make the Reddit homepage, where millions of people come to find out what content everyone is sharing and consuming. At this moment, which will be different even by tomorrow, the mix of stuff on the homepage is, let's call it eclectic. You know, the top three right now actually aren't a bad snapshot of Reddit. The top post is a picture a father submitted that his daughter drew of her yelling at the sun because apparently she hates the sun. It's really both pretty cute and pretty funny. After that, it's a question post of the sort that tends to do pretty well on Reddit. It says, compared to everyone else your age, what life skill are you probably in the bottom 10% of? And more than 10,000 people have submitted their answers, from dancing to small talk to using the microwave. You can browse them all right there. And last week, something appeared on the front page of Reddit that was pretty unusual. It was a photo taken of the dedication of a book that had just been published by a debut author. It's the dedication to A Field Guide to the North American Teenager by Ben Philippe. And it says, to Belzy, I would have made a terrible doctor, Mom. People would have died. And that's it. It's a pretty funny dedication. And apparently the internet thought so too, since it received thousands of upvotes, which are the Reddit community's currency of approval. But we caught wind of this dedication moment of online fame before it hit Reddit, and we weren't the only ones. I am Facebook friends with Jason Pinter, who's the publisher of Paulus Books. And I saw over the weekend that he posted this dedication And it caught my eye because it's funny. This is Rachel Kramer Bussell, who wrote about the dedication in Forbes. I did a little more digging and I ordered a copy of the book and I kept thinking about the dedication and going back and forth. Should I write about this? Should I not write about it? And I kept thinking about it and seeing it mentioned more times after that on Twitter. So then I decided, okay, I want to know more about how it came to be. And what she found, it turns out, starts out in our own backyard, so to speak. The post from Jason Pinzer that Rachel saw had at the time more than 3,000 likes, which is a pretty huge number that you can really only get if people are sharing it and then those people are sharing it. But where had Jason first seen it? Jason credited Eric Smith's tweet, which was more recent, 
that also went viral. Eric Smith is a YA author and literary agent, so he knows and is connected to a whole bunch of people in publishing, and YA especially. And it was from one of those YA people that he heard about the dedication. I emailed him for the article. He said that he had just been hearing Kelly talk about it, and, you know, he wanted to see it for himself. And that Kelly is Kelly Jensen. She and Eric co-host a podcast dedicated to YA called Hey YA. So my understanding is that you, as far as we can tell were the first mover in the viral chain of this thing. Is that your understanding? Yes, it is. Um, I tweeted the thing in, I believe, November. I'm double-checking for you right now. I'm one who usually deletes my tweets in big batches, and I don't think I've deleted this one. Yeah, so November 23rd is when I first tweeted it, and it was in the afternoon, And immediately, people ran with it. There were, as of now, 781 retweets and 3,200 likes. Mm. Mm -hmm. And this is where we found out that the meme was coming from inside the house. Kelly just so happens to be one of our editors here at Book Riot and came across the field guide to the North American teenager in the course of doing her job. Why did you pick this one up? Like... Can you say anything more about like the pre the pre tweet yeah. of the dedication? The pre tweet, yes. Uh, so I had been contacted by Ben's publicist early November about his book coming out, and I had had a copy sitting on my shelf. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read the description of the book, and it was about a black teen boy from Montreal who was moving to. Texas to live with his mom. The whole premise sounded amazing. So I emailed the publicist back and I said, you know, I haven't read it yet. I'm going to read it. But would Ben be interested in writing a guest post? She said yes. And we talked a little bit about what that might look like. And then uh, as we were kind of putting the final touches on what he was going to write and how he was going to approach the topic, I picked up the book to read it. So I had enough context to then give the introduction. And as you know, as soon as I opened the book up and I saw that dedication, I was like, "All right, I got to share this because this is good." Why do you think people have had such a reaction to it? I think part of it, and maybe this is a big part of it, is that so little of what we see on Twitter anymore, especially when you think about how it's become so much about current news and and how terrible everything is. This is just sort of that light of hope and humor. It's also, to use the the terminology of the kids these days, relatable, you know? Um, (laughs) So I think having that pop up and the right people seeing it and then the sharing it really kind of made it take off in a way I didn't anticipate. I was like, oh, a few people will appreciate this and a few people might add it to their to read list. But like I did, I certainly didn't expect this. One other thing Kelly did was to include a photo of the cover of the book along with the photo of the dedication itself in her tweet. So people would know where it came from and find out about this new author. And so a bunch of people found out about the book just as the author was finding out that people were finding out about him or at least about his dedication. I'm sort of an amateur literary historian. I think you might be the first person I know that will have pressure <laughs> to write your second dedication. Y- y- yes. <laughs> what a, a weird, weird, stressful honor. 
This is Ben Philippe, who wrote the fateful dedication and the book that goes along with it, A Field Guide to the North American Teenager. I always knew that if I finished a novel and, God forbid, somebody wanted to publish it, it would be dedicated to my mom. Okay. So I always knew it was going to be to Belzy, which is my mother's name, mm-hmm. but uh, I only wrote it after the book was done. I think I have a little bit of a pet peeve with book dedications that are always obtuse, mm-hmm. like, uh, oh, to... To Jonathan. And I'm as a reader, it always feels like the author is winking right over my head. <laughs> I always like wanted to add a little something. And I think I, I tweet a lot by nature. Yeah. Like the sarcastic rejoinder mm. is something I traffic in. And I just wanted to add a little something after mm-hmm. my mom's name. <laughs> and that was honestly it. It wasn't a big viral campaign that was <laughs> designed by HarperCollins. <laughs> We asked Ben why he thought his dedication spoke to so many people, and he said he thought it came back to an experience a lot of writers, and frankly a lot of people have, about not exactly fulfilling their parents' expectations. I think for my mother, it was just a question that she saw, she she understood being a doctor as yeah. like a successful outcome, and so like my personal happiness, um, she loves me, she wants me to be happy, but she just assumed that like, well, if you wear a nice coat, you have a stethoscope around your neck, people right. look up to you, you save lives, you're happy. And I'm like, okay, mom, the path from me getting like a C minus in bio <laughs> to like being that person is so long and improbable. Right. Um, yeah, but right. yeah, it, and to be fair, she did like come around eventually. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't want to like paint my mom right. as some monster. And it's that experience, or one very like it, that caught Rachel's attention at first, too. To me, what spoke to me about it is that underlying the humor, I think there is a real truth that for a lot of us, no matter how understanding our parents are or proud or accepting, there is sort of a hierarchy of Mm. what professions are acceptable or wanted. And, you know, my parents are happy that I'm doing well, that I make a living writing, but I do still hear my mom talk about, you know, how much money so-and-so's kid makes per year. So I think it, it's it tapped into that in a way that people, you know, related to. And not only are they not planned, it's not clear exactly what going viral like this even means. Ben is still trying to wrap his head around it. It's incredibly surreal. Good surreal. Yeah, it's a little surreal. I was talking to someone who was like, oh, um, if you add up all the retweets and all the likes, you can at least get a sense of like how well the book is selling. I'm like, oh, oh, you sweet summer child. <laughs> that's not, that's not uh, quite what's going to happen I know, here. I know. Though, no offense to Ben, how does he know? Maybe, like the dedication, his book will get good word of mouth and become a bestseller. I bought a copy and read it, and boy, I do hope he's wrong. This episode is brought to you by Book Riot's new subscription service, Tailored Book Recommendations, or TBR. TBR is for readers of all stripes. If you've been dreaming of a stitch fix for books, well, now it's here. Tell TBR about your reading preferences and what you're looking for, and then just sit back while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR offers plans that let you receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations only by email, so there's an option for every budget and plans start at just $15. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. That's mytbr.co.
Some of you already know that Jeff and I host a weekly show where we discuss news from the world of books. And a few weeks ago, we were talking about Amazon's best-selling books of 2018. The top two weren't surprises. But the third one caught us by surprise. What surprised you on this first page of the Amazon okay. bestseller list? Uh, okay, so number one is Michelle Obama's Becoming. Yep. Number two is Girl, Wash Your Face by Rachel Hollis. Number three was The Wonky Donkey by Craig Smith, which... Do you I, know how this happened? I, I don't. Know story. Oh, I was going to say, like, I don't, you know, I don't have kids. I'm not reading a lot of children's books. But usually if there's a kid's book sensation, it makes its way to me. Yes. Um, I do not know the story. Please tell me. To tell the story of how the wonky donkey became a publishing sensation, it actually is relevant to say how I first heard about the book. Mom? Hi. How are you? We're being recorded. Interesting request. Yeah. Is it okay? Yeah, everything's good. All right, let's talk, cool. let's talk about the wonky donkey. Okay. So do you remember, you do you remember hearing about How did you find out about it? Interesting. In, in October of 2018, on the same morning... I got two Facebook messages, one from my sister Jan and one from my friend Jean, both sending me links to Scottish grandmother reading Wonky Donkey. The Scottish granny's name is Janice Clark, and her daughter recorded her reading to Janice's grandson, Archer, thought it was a gas, and uploaded it to YouTube. And it became a sensation. A donkey! Hee-haw! And he only had three legs. He was a wonky donkey. Janice reads the whole book in the video, takes about four minutes, and she's increasingly unable to control her laughter. And apparently, people loved her loving it. The video has now been viewed more than two and a half million times on YouTube alone. I watched it with more people, shown it to people, I laughed, go ahead. The Scottish grandmother and her accent and her, uh, just her trying to control herself, being so tickled. I was walking down the road and I saw a donkey. Hee-haw! He only had three legs, one eye, and he liked to listen to country music. He was a honky-tonky-winky-wonky-donkey. <laughs> I think you like this book. <laughs> and that doesn't count all the reposting and pirating on other platforms. Do yourself a favor and go find it. Link's in the show notes for quick finding. Mom didn't stop at buying a copy of The Wonky Donkey for my kids and reading it to them. She herself is a great example of how this thing blew up. I've had situations where, like, I was at a luncheon with probably 20 women, and I opened it up and passed it around. I mean, it was hilarious just to see what it did to the group. And, you know, they're all grandmothers. Mm -hmm. So just to listen. But then as people started laughing, and then they were laughing at each other, and I think it's cathartic. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really visceral. The net effect was a worldwide surge in demand for the wonky donkey pretty much unlike anything we'd ever heard of. My mom and hundreds of thousands of people like her, that's right, hundreds of thousands, wanted a copy of the book. In October, just two months after Clark's video went live, Scholastic ordered a reprint of The Wonky Donkey. The first printing had been a very respectable 50,000. The reprint was 900,000 copies. And it is still being reprinted right now. But maybe even more surprising is that The Wonky Donkey's viral success last fall well, it wasn't the first time it went viral, or even the second time. The laughter got it going, and laughter has, has restarted it and rebooted it, and I, I fondly call it now the book that got the whole world laughing, because 
It's been pretty infectious, as you'll know from um, Mm -hmm. what you've seen over the past little while. This is Lynette Evans, publishing manager for Scholastic New Zealand, and she has had a front row seat to the wonky donkey's rise. We're about to celebrate Wonky's 10th birthday here in in New Zealand and Australia, but dialing back to its very beginnings, Mm -hmm. um, it began with Craig Smith, the author, who is an itinerant musician in New Zealand. This story began in the rugby club rooms, fittingly, of you know, basically a little family gathering of family and friends, you know, having a few bit of food and drinks and telling a few jokes. And mm. one of the jokes was, what do you call a donkey with three legs? The answer was a wonky donkey to which Craig and his friends and family all fell about laughing. He went away from that fun evening got out his rhyming dictionary and thought the wonky donkey is going to make a great song. That's where it began, out of laughter and jokes and good times, and he began the rhyming. Basically got that that story, the cumulative rhyme that is a real Mm -hmm. signature of the story, um, going. It was published in 2007, which he included on his first children's CD, and it became the New Zealand Song of the Year in 2008. It quickly became a part of pop culture in New Zealand and Australia, along the lines of songs here in the States like Who Let the Dogs Out? Suddenly everyone knew and could quote the wonky donkey. Craig realized that the song was great, but there might be another format that would work. He met our senior editor, Penny Scown, who's been with Scholastic for 35 years, I might add. (laughs) Quite amazing. He met her at one of the functions that we uh, tend to uh, attend, introduced himself and said he has, he's thought that some of his songs could be made into children's books. Penny asked him to send in his CD. Having a listen, the one that was just miles ahead of anything else and hilarious was the wonky donkey. No question that that was the one that we at Scholastic New Zealand were going to pick. Craig really brought the whole package. A viral children's hit song was just the start. Craig said he had a friend who was an artist and she'd like to have a go at illustrating it and so her name is Kit Cowley, the illustrator and she just did such an amazing and just that slightly outrageous (laughs) job. Scholastic New Zealand committed to an initial print run of around 9,000 copies. But the response from booksellers was so strong that they increased that to over 12,000 for the fall 2009 season. Then when the um, book hit the shelves on October 1st, it just went completely nuts. We had to print a uh, further five times before Christmas to a total of uh, 79,550 and nobody here had seen anything like it. Australia sold super well there as well. Um, So across our editions, um, we had uh, more than um, half a million in, in mm. print. Um, yeah, so it was definitely a phenomenon. Um, our, our GM, um, Neil Wellam, he tells me that he almost had to install a, 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 like a, an emergency reprint button under his desk just because of Wonky in order to keep up with it. The book has continued to sell strongly in New Zealand and Australia ever since, but it couldn't quite seem to crack the U.S. and U.K. markets. The first U.S. edition had an initial printing of 75,000 copies, but never gained much traction. That changed last fall in a big way. And the snowflake that would roll down the hill and become a second avalanche is as unlikely as wonky itself. We haven't yet talked about the person holding the camera in the Scottish Granny's video, her daughter and mother of the young boy Archer who's being read to. She belonged to a sewing group and someone had brought, wanted to make a wonky costume and she'd picked up a 20-cent book from a garage sale and brought it home and she, 
you know, she wanted to send a video to her friend that was making the costume. And that really was it. Scholastic immediately saw a spike in demand unprecedented in the history of children's books, especially in how fast it took off. As soon as the video went viral for the Scotch Granny, which happened in the first week of September here, Mm -hmm. it instantly sold out in New Zealand and in Australia. It hit number one and it stayed there apart from... um, Apart from two weeks early on when we had run out of stock, we called it the wonky wave. It's just you're seeing one country after the other mm-hmm. realise that this is something that, that makes kids laugh and adults laugh and everyone laughs and just picking it up. The wonky donkey has now taken the number one spot in the bestseller lists in every corner of the English speaking world. And you might think that now, finally, it will reach a saturation point. There's a chance that rather than ending, this thing is just getting started. We've just got word from Italy that they're going to translate it. I can't wait to hear it read in Italian. Oh, I know. I didn't think so, about translations. Translation no is very difficult. Yes. It doesn't usually happen. Like, we wouldn't expect it. Like, it's been picked up in Asia, across Asia, across many territories, but in English. So this is the first, and this isn't firm news. It's sort of right. in the pipeline, but it's, it's 90% there. Get ready, rest of the world, to hear and read this in your mother tongue. I was walking down the road and I saw a donkey. I only had three legs. This episode of Annotated was written and produced by me, Jeff O'Neill. Sound editing and design by Kyle O'Neill. Do yourself a favor and Google Scottish Grandma Wonky Donkey. Also, do yourself another favor and go find yourself a copy of A Field Guide to the North American Teenager by Ben Philippe. And if you'd like to do us a favor, rate and review Annotated on Apple Podcasts. To make it easier for you, just remember, five stars is the best. And a reminder, if you want some more Annotated in your life, go follow Annotated FM on Instagram. There's a link in the show notes, or you can really just Google Annotated on Instagram. Until next time, read something great. Was a honky tonky winky, wonky donkey, honky tonky winky, wonky donkey.